FNVS podcast, Tibetan Context, seeks a deeper understanding of what is happening in Tibet as the Chinese Communist Party policies seek to eliminate Tibet's separate cultural identity and history. Stay tuned for our podcast commemorating the United Nations International Day of Victims of Enforced Disappearance. This show, produced by FNVA, is hosted by Kate Saunders, our Senior Research Fellow, in conversation with Tibetans discussing circumstances around disappeared writers in Tibet. Thank you, Rabon. Pleasure to be here with two esteemed guests, Derek Tokme. Tokme was born in eastern Tibet and he made the dangerous journey, mostly on foot, into exile across the mountains some years ago. And after studying first in India, he made his way to the West where he did a master's degree in Poland. And he's currently engaged in a doctorate at Oxford University where he's studying Tibetans' relationship to the Mongolian Empire uh, from a history and philosophical perspective. And also here with us is Tenzin Choki. Tenzin Choki is a senior researcher at Tibet Watch based in London and Dharamsala. And uh, Tenzin, in her role, monitors information about policy, uh, tracks developments in Tibet, human rights violations, she has a background in environmental science, working in three languages, and also provides analysis of the current situation in Tibet to journalists, governments, and academics. And we're here to mark the International Day of the Disappeared by talking about some important Tibetan scholars and writers uh, in Tibet who have um, suffered from their writing um, and talking about why why this is so important um, and why they um, why Tibetan civilization needs to sorry I think I might ask Rebon to edit out that bit because because um, I was rambling there but we're going to be talking about some of the important Tibetan intellectuals and scholars and writers, many of whom are now serving prison sentences and who who have disappeared. And so I want to I want to start off, I think, in in uh, 2008, when Tibetans across the plateau led a series of overwhelmingly peaceful protests in defense of their civilization and their national, cultural and religious identity. And it was a few months before Beijing's coming out party in the form of the uh, Summer Olympics. So for around two weeks in 2008, Tibet literally became one of the world's biggest stories. There were images of uh, Tibetan nomads flying homemade Tibetan flags, um, monks in the Jokhang temple in Lhasa weeping as they told journalists that the Chinese government doesn't tell the truth and lies to them. And um, after that, there was a scope of a, a crackdown of um, a scope and scale that hadn't been witnessed before. The situation in Tibet was politically transformed and hundreds of Tibetans were disappeared uh, by the Chinese government. And what does that mean? Being disappeared means to be taken from your home, from your family, sometimes in the middle of the night, um, and taken somewhere to a prison, to a military camp, to a detention centre where nobody knows where you are. So there is a sort of double trauma, which is for your family, your friends, they don't know if you're alive or dead. And in April 2008, hundreds of monks were taken from the monasteries of Sarah, Gandan, and Drepung in Lhasa, the great three monasteries of the Tibetan culture. And they were seen by witnesses being uh, transported by train out of Lhasa. Many of them were barefoot. Many of them were bleeding. A lot of them had hoods over their heads. 
and uh, they were taken to places where they underwent political education and of course people who are disappeared where no one knows where they are are extremely vulnerable to not only torture and long periods in prison but also to being being killed as well and some reports reached us from those monks um, including a very a very powerful poem that one of those monks uh, had written while he was in while he was in custody and it was an extraordinary poem it was called vapor of the poisonous snake and one of tibet's best known writers perhaps the most famous of the tibetan writers sering wosa who's based in beijing um, she published this poem on her blog and i'll i'll read some of this poem here because it's quite a powerful introduction um, to the way that Tibetans cope with um, with being disappeared, being with with the attempt to extinguish their their very identity, not only as as writers and artists or monks or scholars, but but as people. So, this is an extract from the poem "Vapor of the Poisonous Snake." The three seats of Sarah, Drepung and Gandam are struck by the vapour of the poisonous snake. Because of this sea of adverse circumstance, there's no right to diligently study the scriptural texts. O triple gem, kindly guide and protect us. O triple gem, come forth with speed. Since the chance for the mandala of the sun and the the poet monk uses a phrase which means universe of a billion worlds. Shining through the windows of the prison cell is well nigh impossible. The weary gloom of anguish has set in. O sun, come forth with speed. O sun, we cannot wait much longer. My karmic destiny, shaped in past lives, has rendered this youth a victim of circumstance. In the three seats of learning of the Utsang region, there's no freedom of movement. O karmic destiny, grant us good fortune. Highlighting the well-known state of affairs, we await freedom of movement. And that was written in Golmud Military Prison in Qinghai in May 2008, just a few weeks after those monks were taken from Lhasa. So perhaps we could begin by talking about some more recent examples of disappearances. And Choki, I would like to ask you, if you will, to speak about some writers, some very important writers who, who were in prison and who were detained quite recently. Sure, um, Kate, thank you for, um, for organizing this, uh, you know, uh, online discussion about disappearance and writers, the role of writers in Tibet uh, as it is, as the ongoing occupation of China still continues um, since 1950s. Um, the poem that you read was, it reminded me of a book that was published in outside Tibet by a Tibetan writer called Tsering Yangzung Lama because the poem written by the monk in Saint Tibet refers to a snake. And in the opening pages of Yangzum Lama's uh, you know, debut novel, she also writes about a snake you know, coming from the east of Tibet, and which is you know, a metaphor for the invasion. So, um, you know, and, and the poem that you read, you know, of a monk that was in Golmo reminds me of a writer who was also there at the time, uh, who is from Nava, Gorshe uh, Rabgazu, who was sentenced uh, to 10 years in prison. Gorshe Rabgazu is a very prominent uh, Tibetan intellectual writer uh, who has fiercely uh, and you know, without any fear written and published uh, his thoughts uh, about the state of the Tibetan society. Uh, but not just that, he is a brilliant scholar, uh, he's a brilliant Buddhist scholar. So um, 
to go briefly into who he is as a person. Uh, his family, uh, both his grandparents from his father's and mother's side, were ministers in the Miu Kingdom in Naba in, uh, in Eastern Tibet. So uh, in Naba, in more, in more recent um, you know, knowledge, is known for being the epicenter of self-immolation uh, in Tibet and also in, in around the world. Gosher Gatso uh, was, the, the most recent sentence uh, was handed in, uh, in, in October, um, well, his arrest took place in October 2020, but the uh, prison sentence was handed much later. But even before that, uh, he was already uh, detained and arrested three times. The first time he was arrested when he was only 22. The second time he was arrested, he was 32, and he was in Golmu. Uh, that was in 2008 when the mass detentions of monks from Pasa uh, took place. So, um, you know, but he has still continued to write and publish and he has published over 10 books um, and even Tibetans inside Tibet really uh, look up to the courage, the moral courage that he uh, you know, lives on a daily basis by writing and publishing, knowing the cost that it would have on his own life you know, because he's, he's been detained so young. Uh, his own father was one of the courageous uh, individuals who were who was against the you know um, armed uh, who was against who was involved in the resistance in uh, during the cultural revolution in fighting against the uh, Chinese Communist Party so and his father by the way uh, passed away in exile in Nepal so Gosher Getso despite all of this would continue to write and publish um, you know, uh, he was also in Hassa in 2008 when the mass uh, uprising, uh, peaceful demonstrations uh, spread across Tibet. Um, but so the role of the writers, you know, uh, just like Gosherab Gatso, there are many other Tibetan writers uh, who Gosherab also knows who, who was also sentenced to prison. So, Lobsang Hindu, uh, who is known by his pen name Dil Hadden, was sentenced to uh, four years in prison. Uh, Ronwoi Gindun Hindu, uh, who Gosher also knows, uh, we have at Tibet Watch received photos of them being together, was disappeared. You know, uh, how Ronwoi Gindun Hindu, you know, also a monk, was disappeared is that there was uh, there's an ongoing uh, policy implementation in Tibet called the Sinicization of Tibetan Buddhism. So uh, in his monastery, the campaign was you know being you know unrolled, and in one of the workshops, uh, he asked one of the workshop facilitators like, "How do you sinicize Tibetan Buddhism?" And which resulted in an altercation between the facilitators and him. And then a few days later, when he was uh, on his way to uh, Yagong County, uh, he was, uh, it was in December 2020, he was suddenly taken off from the street in a black car, uh, the, which was seen by a street side uh, vegetable vendor. Now, where he is, we don't know, you know, and this is the state of a Tibetan writer, but then also of many, many Tibetans who are disappeared like that, who are who are held in uh, incommunicado in, in detention for sometimes you know more than two years, during which we have uh, instances where they were tortured and they were left with injuries that were beyond treatment. So um, writers, you know, knowing. Writers in general, all over the world, they are themselves, you know, uh, uh, a story, uh, their life, you know, after observing the society, the changes in the society, uh, they write what is happening around them, and, and sometimes they very boldly write their own life stories, which then becomes a portal for us, you know, Tibetans in exile and diaspora to 
look into understanding how the contemporary Tibet is. But uh, so writers have such an important place, you know, everywhere in the world, especially in places where the dictatorship, you know, the apparatus of censorship placed on literature is just growing with technology, you know. Uh, the the Romwigindu, for example, or one of the website online website that he monitors was also taken down. So uh, that is the state of Tibet. If we just look from the point of view of disappearance and, and imprisonment of writers, so we have Koshar Gatso, we have Romwigindu, Hindu, we have Lopsang Hindu, and then we also have another writer, Sabuche. Uh, uh, his pen name uh, was also sentenced to prison, but you know most of the commentaries that he has published are not even uh, you know, mostly about mostly social commentary, so not explicitly political even. And it's really hard that the censorship inside Tibet puts you know those outside Tibet to fully understand what is unknown. Um, so when you look at the scene of you know surveillance uh, of the surveillance state being deliberately created inside Tibet and also in China, I think that even the saddest of the saddest poem or an essay that we are able to read out here uh, is not even sad. I think there are far more sadder and really heartbreaking and true stories that are being silenced that we still have yet to hear. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. And, and Goshara Gyatso did a very moving letter um, about the Chinese doctor, Li Wanliang, who um, was the whistleblower of, about COVID when the uh, pandemic was first breaking out. And he was silenced and died and uh, the and Gosharo Gyatso wrote a very moving piece about him didn't he and as a monk scholar from Kirti Monastery Gosharo Gyatso was um there's there's a piece of his writing here that I think sums it up very well he wrote um, in 2013 he wrote um a letter to the monastic Education Committee, which was translated by Dechen Pemper's website, High Peaks Pure Earth. And uh, it includes this. He, he wrote this. Since the time of the Buddha, there has always been a space to analyze the nature of things based on one's mental capacity and to test and critique truth about objects and phenomena. In the future, too, this space for debate must continue like the great scholars of the past who have handed down this tradition from one generation to the next, we must strive to continue and further improve upon this great tradition. It is simply wrong for a few people to have the power to decide whether someone's writing can and cannot be published. And then he ends with saying that he has a real heaviness in his heart because the red wind from outside is so strong and it's orders so strict that we barely have space to breathe in and breathe out. And this this seems to be a very um, a very grounded and a very poignant perspective from a monk scholar. And I wonder if I could ask Tokme to expand further on the the role of the writer in Tibetan society and and why this is so important. Um, in the context of their struggle to preserve language and culture. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, first, uh, I think regarding to uh, Grishira, uh, apart from being a great writer, he is a very good public speaker. Uh, I think that's very important, especially in regarding to Tibetan society. Uh, Tibetan society is still like a most people are illiterate. People can't read sophisticated poems, intellectual stuff, but people can listen. So uh, that that's make it really uh, make him a very special from any other Tibetan writers, Tibetan those people to struggle for freedom. 
And another unique thing about the Gushar is, I think Gushar could be uh, one of the representatives for those intellectual writers. Uh, Gushar himself studied in Bhasa, and he knew the condition of Bhasa that he'd been a calm area for many years as a monastic intellectual teacher. Then he was born in Andok, so he literally knew all three parts of Tibet. Then he has some relatives in uh, exile. Then he's good in Chinese. He read a lot of like Western uh, books about philosophy, human rights, equality, all kind of things. So he's a kind of person, everything in one position. So whenever he speak to the public, he try to educate already read some uh, uh, piece of stuff there. He tried really uh, convince the people, not the old-fashioned way, not like a very stronger nationalistic approach. It's like really like sort of a universal approach. How is a human being? How is a person? The founded equality, freedom, uh, democracy, how those are important. That's why I think for China, they definitely they found this is really uh, dangerous for uh, for the government, for the public stability. So uh, maybe, you know, uh, there's a similar figure, something maybe you've heard of this, uh, Jampa Lushe. Jampa Lushe is an the monk scholar who finished his uh, Geshe degree in uh, something, Sera Monastery, a garden of Sera, I guess it's Sera Monastery. Then he went back to Tibet and uh, recently passed away. But many still uh, people still questioning why he suddenly passed away. Uh, what is his condition? What is uh, his medical treatment? But no one yet really know about. But he has the similar quality like a Gosherab Jansu. He is a monastic intellectual. At the same time, he knows the broad understanding of this human right, equality, freedom, all kind of broad view of all these important things that really Tibetans are struggling for. So uh, those people are, I think it's really a sort of turning point. If you look at the Tibetan freedom struggle, just say about 60, 60 years of Tibetan freedom struggle. Almost by 2008 and 9, Tibetan, mostly Tibetan freedom strikers, individual peoples, lay peoples, or monks, they, they might fight for Tibetan freedom of religion or Tibetan freedom of sort of human rights, sort of for pe people's land. Or, or they are struggle for His Holiness Dalai Lama coming back to Tibet. But start from those intellects like Gushirab Jenso, Jampa Loshi, and also Dilhardan, Tirong, those lay peoples start to involve with the Tibetan freedom struggle. We can see a really a big turning point for the Tibetan struggle. It's not just a struggle for as a nation. It's not really symbolistic view of nationalist approach. It's as a human being, as a human being in this world, how important for equality, freedom, all sort of kind of things. It's a, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's really an uh, important turning point. If you look at this uh, this point of uh, uh, approach to Tibetan freedom struggle, then uh, above that, I wanna also add that Tiran uh, and Shokton, Shokton, those lay peoples who are personally, most of them are educated in Chinese schools and Chinese universities and colleges. So if you look at the past history, most of it, these kind of people from not like Tibetan, other minority people who are educated in Chinese schools, they become a like, permanent Chinese servant who served Chinese government. But these people suddenly turned back to China. They started speaking out uh, in terms of their own constitution. Suppose uh, if you, the very important case is uh, when uh, Shokjian was arrested in 2016, uh, he uh, wrote a very important letter to the uh, local code on the based on the based of Chinese constitution, how people can have a freedom of speech, freedom of right, freedom of publish. So those kind of intellectual movement to fight against the Chinese own constitution, Chinese own legal system is a uh, is I think is a very important because that that that's really make a difference from 
other common people, those people who are not really educated, who just uh, come out in the street, shout for freedom, shout for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, then just gone in jail. So, but those intellectuals are coming with a different approach. I think these are the very important uh, contributions brought by those uh, intellectuals, the writers to Tibetan freedom struggle. You're on mute, Kate. Sorry about that. Um, you mentioned Thorang, Thorang before, who was one of the writers of the Eastern Snow Mountain, the, uh, the famous publication from Naba in Amdo. And one of the notable things about that, well, that was one of the most important collections of writing about 2008 and published, published in, that, in that same year. Um, and that was supported by a lot of uh, lay people, um, a lot of people in that area who who funded and published that. Of course, it was banned from circulation soon after publication. But perhaps you could talk a little more about that and those writers. Uh, yeah, uh, the Eastern Mountain is normally a sort of a magazine kind of a a journal for literature is published yearly based or seasonally based. I'm not very sure about anywhere. It's a, something they basically publish every year, every month. Uh, but in 2008, uh, Tirang, Shokjang, uh, some of other people who are recently, some of them already graduate, some are in the final year of graduation, they become editor then they really uh, uh, take, uh, they really took a very strong stand, whether they uh, already they collect a couple of articles, essays, then they, I think, submitted to the uh, university uh, institution to uh, publication permission. But they said, you can't publish this. If you publish this, then you can't, this journal will be end there. Then there's no more journal next year. Then they have there's loads of, back in the days, then, Blog writing is very popular, right? People write online. Whether it's important to give up the, the life of the journal or is it better to say something that you want to say in the journal, then no matter whether this is the end of the last publication, then anyway, at the end, they decide to publish uh, some of those articles. It's a really important uh, collection of articles. And many of articles related to the 2008 the peaceful Tibetan revolution, as uh, uh, Kate mentioned above. Uh, so uh, in, in, that, in that article, Kirong uh, wrote uh, a very important piece about uh, regarding to Tibet, uh, Chinese constitution, how individual person, how Chinese citizen can have a freedom to, freedom, uh, to speak, freedom to write, freedom to peaceful protest. So uh, as I said before, these are the very very important approach, but because no one said that before, people come in the street, then people shout for freedom, people arrested. So many people, other people think, okay, this must be the case. But those intellectuals, once they Chinese own constitution, they read it, they just bring that out, they fight it back with their own constitution. So this is the something, uh, this East Mountain, uh, the journal uh, uh, making a very big, big issue in, uh, in China, and it's also popular. I think it's republished in Excel, and uh, many of those articles are translated in uh, uh, other 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 publications. In other, I think it's come area. Some of those uh, articles are published. There. So uh, I think this is a really important uh, sort of a journal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and uh, in terms of popular culture as well, the. Um, Music is very important in Tibetan tradition. And uh, the role of the singers has been very important. The, and many of the singers have, have uh, gone to prison because of the, uh, the, the lyrics of their songs and also their investment in, in their own cultural identity and protecting it, which obviously... Yep clashes with China's project of sinicization, as Choki mentioned, which is, which is seeking to um, 
to compel Tibetans to conform to a Chinese cultural nationalism and to eliminate and undermine a, a Tibetan identity. It's, there was recently a couple of really well-known Tibetan uh, singers, I can't mention the name, uh, but they were going live, uh, you know, uh, with their, you know, fans or whatever. And but in the beginning, you know, they were speaking to each other in Tibetan and saying that, you know, well, we can't speak to each other in Tibetan, can we? Because if we speak in Tibetan, then our life thing will be put down. So, you mm. know, it's, it's, you know, writers, musicians, artists, you know, they are all part of cultural, uh, you know, knowledge, uh, cultural production, uh, cultural identity. Um, and you see that the, the musicians, not only can they, uh, you know, quite, you know, they don't have the freedom to just openly sing about the state of their homeland or what's happening, you know, uh, under these various range of freedom that the constitution, you know, promises to, you know, give them, but not, they can't even, you know, uh, they have the fear to speak on life in their own language. So uh, I think that's really uh, something that is going to affect uh, the whole literature scene, you know, it's the project that's going to, that has been going, you know, since the occupation of Tibet, and that the Chinese uh, Communist Party seeks to deliberately uh, go ahead with, you know, for years and years and years. Uh, I think that's the cost of, you know, uh, colonial policies on individual lives, uh, on every facet of what forms an individual and collective identity. Why do you why do you think uh, that uh, the Chinese Party state is so threatened by um, by the writers and by the artists by the singers? I think um, so. That's only my point of view. Uh, I think writers, you know artists uh, are they they live through the changes of time and they reflect it they reflect what the reality is you know but the chinese communist party uh, has only one vision of how the so-called common prosperity of a human being should be and this word common prosperity is now being widely uh, you know ubiquitously used in the Chinese state-owned media, <clears throat> you know, so what, what should be uh, prosperity, what should be happiness, you know, what's, what is, what is the, own, the version of reality, whether it's, you know, how you should speak, what you should think, what you should not think, you know, these are only uh, attempts to consolidate power, uh, you know, and knowledge, and it's directed with a specific agenda. But the reality is such that, you know, writers, artists, and musicians, they, they are not confined with that, you know, uh, they are not hungry for power, I don't think. I think they just reflect life as it is, as it changes. Um, and I think the CCP, they're not willing to see it, accept it, or confront it. Uh, and so they would, you know, uh, make a host of policies to silence it in any means, in any way possible. So it's the refusal to open their imagination to freedom, which everybody wants at the end of the day. And Tokmei, the, the, the sort of existential cover it, courage of the writers and, and artists and those Tibetans who are still running pure land language groups or, or defending their cultural identity in so many different ways. Do you see that continuing today, people finding new ways of, of expression? I mean, what, what, what do you think is, is the future for Tibetan literature and uh, 
in under these circumstances? I think, as uh, Chuki Chukila mentioned, I think music is very important element in Tibetan freedom struggle. It's the same case if you look at uh, any and if you pick up any national freedom struggle case, any country in the West, in Asia, suppose India. So music play a huge, huge role all the time. Is that's no exception to the Tibetan case as well. If you uh, look at uh, uh, some of Tibetan music is from 2008. Uh, some of Tibetan songs almost become sort of national anthem. People sing, uh, come under Pasa, exile, everywhere. It's uh, become a part of the identity. So when we, uh, we discuss about Tibetan music, they always uh, writers behind those musicians uh, most of uh, at one point, Tibetan music writers start to write loads of lyrics. It's uh, as Chukila said, is a is a, a case. If you if you are in China, if you're a musician, you continue to sing a song, so you can't say things so obviously, so visibly. So people uh, start to uh, compose a lyric. Those have a meaning. So so everybody sort of everybody know the meaning, but they didn't say so visibly. So uh, those music they play important role, but they still play important role. And uh, another important uh, shift, uh, if you look at the, uh, those Tibetan writers, is uh, now Tibetan uh, music is become more sort of accessible to the public. Uh, back in days, if you are a musician, but still you need a quite good amount of money to publish your album or cast or anything. But nowadays, the internet, because of internet connection, because of this online system, any anyone can compose, sing a song, publish online. So you don't need to publish in an album CD. So, and uh, many of those, if you look at just randomly, you pick up some modern Tibetan music in YouTube, you go them, look at them, lyric composers, Many of lyrics are most often related with the Tibetan culture, Tibetan struggle, Tibetan mountains. Uh, sometimes some people from beginning to end is about a mountain. It looks like about a mountain. It's not actually the mountain. People know that what they really mean to the mountain they're referring to, you know. So uh, those are have been played for maybe since last decade. It's really play important role in Tibetan freedom struggle. And it is still still uh, be the same. Then some of the uh, music become part of uh, popular culture. I should say that because uh, if you look at modern some of modern Chinese cities such as Beijing, uh, Chengdu, Xinin, uh, Xinin is like a Tibetan city, but the loads of Chinese people live there. So now uh, most of the Tibetans gathered every maybe weekends, every afternoons. The dance in a big circle to play Tibetan music. So if we listen to some of those lyrics, those lyrics are uh, talk about Tibetan unity, the importance of Tibetan language, Tibetan culture. So it's a sort of a part of the way because more more Tibetans are moving into cities. So they are creating this uh, new way of identity, new way of to connect to each other through music. So if you look at behind this music, those are the writers who compose those beautiful, beautiful uh, lyrics. So, so it's a place every part of life, you know, is a, is a, is a, is really important. Now, is a, if you see Dharamsala, now people start to uh, having a circle dance in mellow ways on every weekend or something. It's happened every exile uh, back in days. Well, I was saying in the first uh, in. Uh, Poland in the Warsaw. So whenever people have a gatherings, Tibetan New Year, or any other special gatherings, we have a pray, then eat something, then do something of one or two Tibetan dance. But now, group dance, circle dance become a most part important part of gatherings. So if you look at those music, those are not just the music about love or something. This is all the lyrics about mountains love for the country, importance of culture. So it's a, it's a place, a huge role everywhere. Mm. That's wonderful description. 
and I saw it. So, uh, there's this comic sketch that I saw, I think maybe a year ago. It's about just the non-stop new music videos uh, that are coming you know, out you know, in Tibetan media. And often when you go on YouTube <clears throat> and look for Tibetan songs, new songs, you know, you just type new Tibetan song. And then you, <laughs> all the songs are titled new Tibetan song, 2021, 2022. And this comic sketch says that, you know, uh, someone made a music video and wants to you know, put it on YouTube and just thinking really hard, you know, what to name it, something really catchy and quirky, you know, that would just stand out, you know, in the pool of music video, but then finally just ends up, you know, naming it New Tibetan Music Video, <laughs> New Tibetan Song or something like that. So, yeah, that's been going on for many, many years. And I think that, you know, what... Um, Derek just said about music being really important. I think we're going to see many new ones every year. <laughs> hmm. uh, there, uh, the combat TV, that interests me because uh, Tibetan musicians, but still there's, uh, this is still completely new things, but Tibetans, uh, I mean, they love music, but the way they enjoy music is different from uh, where we enjoy here or enjoy on the place, you know. Uh, now, uh, come back to you every month, they have a small episode to uh, select the top music, like a billboard chart with the top number one, two. They do that because based on the Chinese uh, social media where they platform every month who is the new music uh, released by a new artist, then based on the election, based on the vote by the listeners, they uh just display show that all the music every month in combat tv if you look at uh, every year most are uh, tour music is always uh, uh those uh, lyrics uh, plays very important role but obviously the music the rhythm sounds important but lyrics play a very important role whatever you look at tour number one and two they always uh, lyrics are uh, really make a difference you know always say something about uh, culture or identity or something very kind of thing. They always, always tom number one or two. So uh, they really still play a big role. Mm -hmm. That's true. Did you want to say anything about the singer uh, Sawang Nobu? Sawang uh, Nobu, I came to know Sawang Nobu through some of you friends, other friends who knows him personally. Um, so Tanop uh, is a person, some of these are some people like Tanop, so it's those artists who can compose their own lyrics. Tanop uh, mainly sing a song, also he do a little bit of rap kind of lyrics as well. So Tanop, uh, it's interesting thing is if you look at Tanop as a person, family background, her mother is a, a very well-known uh, a Tibetan nomadic singer. Uh, she sang a very popular song back in the maybe 90s. Then she became a very popular. Then she became a Chinese uh, communist military singer or something. Then he literally does. Then he she separated from her family. Then Tano grew up with uh, his father and his uncle. So uncle is a very well known Tibetan freedom striker. He went to jail a couple of times, or two, three times. Then if we look at the Tano's music, he sing uh, in the many of platforms in both in Tibet and in China. He always sing either in Tibetan or in English. So he's been singing that for many, many years. And just last the year before, I think 2019 or something, the year or one or two years before he uh, self-immolated, one of the uh, TV commentators said to Tsarnova, why you didn't sing any Chinese song? Why always, you come all the time, any TV, there's lots of TV uh, programs have uh, competitions for those young singers. He said, you should sing a Chinese song. Maybe then you go, uh, maybe finalist or you get a better marks. You always sing a Chinese song or Tibetan song. The problem is, if you sing English song, Chinese song, most of those people give a mark, they don't understand either Chinese, either English or Tibetan. So that's the case. So um, that's why uh, Teono, people like him, he's young, he's a uh, well, kind of well-established artist. Uh, 
and they, if you look look at the personal sort of stories, they always keep a very strong position. Sort of person, they have very individual principles. Uh, shall we call it? It's a, it's a really important. If you look at it, if you look at number of Tibetan singers, if you look at those individuals, uh, how they play a role in Tibetan, if you freedom struggle or preservation cultural identity. They all individual very interesting stories like Tsewanopo. He been keep on thinking about uh, Tibetan identity, culture, not like very much religious way, about very something very simple, like he's one of his popular songs called Zamba. How he described Tibetan through Zamba, how important, how the Zamba's color is white, how it's connected with the Tibetan people's heart, Tibetan people's struggle. So it's a, it's a very interesting. So uh, I think he's a, he's quite a unique unique singer. And he was only twenty five years old when he uh, set himself on yeah, fire. So yeah, yeah. And uh, and of course there was an outpouring of grief from young Tibetans and young Chinese because he was he was extremely well known among Chinese young people as well for his for his uh, songs. Is many young people, especially in the like in Hasa and uh, those people who really uh, loved his songs, they uh, many of people saying if you look at Chinese uh, social media, if you kept a, a Chinese Weibo, and many people saying they have a news of whether he's self-immolate or not, but people are not sure. But everybody running after his uh, Weibo, his uh, personal Facebook sort of Facebook page, and. Then the people are writing a lot of comments on the, uh, after his blog. And then after maybe I keep on watching that. Or maybe after one two hours it's gone. That so you can't comment anything. Then people are running after those other his personal songs published. There's a uh, uh, There's Chinese another uh, website where they published uh, new Tibetan songs. People running after that songs. That people start writing the comments comment section. And after a few minutes, the gun, you can't write any comments. Mm. Then the two, three days after, like, all his songs in Chinese, we fall by the uh, Chinese TikTok or gone everywhere. So the people, the reaction is very strong. That's why people can't say anything. Then what they do, any individuals with the, the picture of a Tibetan Potala, because he's self-emulated just in front of Potala Palace, mm. someone posts the Potala Palace, then in the comment section, all people are just uh, posting the image of crying people or with the folding hands. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's really emotional people, especially mm-hmm. among young mm-hmm. people. People, they can't say a word. You're not allowed, if you say something, then you delete it away. So that's uh, just put all the place. People, you know, try to communicate a different way. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's quite emotional, but it's very interesting as well. Mm-hmm. This really speaks to also a larger um, trend, I suppose, in the self-immolations we're seeing inside Tibet. So uh, it's been over 150 uh, known reports of Tibetans been having self-immolated inside Tibet. Uh, there's also been you know, self-immolations outside Tibet as well by Tibetans. But those inside Tibet, at least, you know, Half of them, if I'm not wrong, were committed by Tibetans under 24 years old. So, mm. you know, these are really young, you know, young young people who who come from different family backgrounds. You know, who are from across the Tibetan areas, uh, not just Tibetan autonomous region that the Chinese government, you know always explains as being the only Tibet. So um, I think it really sheds light on how, uh, you know, it's not going away, uh, the the Tibetan issue uh, not being addressed. You know, these are Tibetans who have, if they're only in their 20s, they lived, they haven't witnessed uh, an occupation. They haven't, you know, mm-hmm. but they have inherited that sense of identity. Um, and to do to to have that, you know, even after many many years of what seven decades of Tibet being under occupation, that really is an answer to the lie that the 
government always, you know, perpetuates every single year, uh, especially on 28 March nowadays, since the 2008 uprising, they marked that day off as being the self, uh, the Surf Emancipation Day. So, uh, that, you know, Tibet is still not free. It's still not, uh, it's still under occupation and uh, Freedom House ranks Tibet as being the least free country. So, uh, yeah, Tawang uh, Nurbu with his songs, you know, even if they are not specifically about you know, asking for freedom or crit criticizing this policy and this, you know, article, but then he speaks to, you know, what being a Tibetan is, you know, an identity that is distinct from, uh, from, Ch uh, from, from Chinese identity, which is also very multi cultural, but yeah, I think as Derek said, uh, you know, if we look through one individual's life, that story, that life, a person can become a looking glass into what Tibet is nowadays. Yep. I mean, the the two self-immolations this year of Sawang Norbu on the uh, 25th of February outside the Patala, um, and then the uh, more recent uh, self-immolation in, in Naba of Tapun, who was 81 years old. So the, you know, the, the elder generation and the younger generation, both this year. That's true. Yeah. And also the older Tashi Punzok, the 81-year-old, when he turned 80, he had, you know, told uh, other Tibetans that the young, you know, Tibetan youth should not give up, that you know, with the blessing of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, the exiled spiritual Tibetan leader, uh, the sun of happiness will shine in Tibet. So, you know, he was not even saying it specifically to his grandchildren, you know, he was just saying, you know, the young, the youth, you know, of Tibet, don't give up. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's still here. Mm. And even with such a young um, singer who had, from the outside, received all of the benefits of, uh, of the younger generation culture and reasonably comfortable lifestyle and so on. The fact that he chose to take that extreme action. True. So much about. Um, I, I remember that uh, in in China when they talk about thought reform back in the Cultural Revolution, they used to use this uh, phrase, which was the invisible knife, which was the knife that doesn't cut the body uh, physically, but it cuts your thoughts and your connections to who you are as a person. Mm. And, uh, this ongoing campaign of sinicization, it seems that many of the Tibetan writers are experiencing that and experiencing that, that response. <clears throat> it's the invisible knife. You, you can't see the psychic damage, the damage it's doing to your... Mm. To your and the way they do it with no respect, you know, this grotesque level of how you relate to another human being, even after, you know, even after their death. So in the case of Tashi Pinzok, you know, uh, he was, he's in his last years of his, you know, life, and he moved near to, to live near Kirti Monastery, you know, as many elder generations are devout Buddhists, you know, they want to commit the last stage of their life towards, uh, you know, uh, a, a virtuous life, going on Kora circumambulations. So, and he, so his self emulation took place in front of police station. So it's not coincident. It's not a coincidence that they would, you know, protest in front of the police. It's a statement in itself. Mm. But, you know, his body was taken away. He, his body was not returned to his family. And his family was obviously kept under surveillance. And then they would go on to just spread lies about how the self-immolation was a suicide and, uh, you know, and keep a grieving family who don't even have the body of their, you know, of their mm. grandfather to say the final prayers. I think that really speaks to 
how inhuman Chinese Communist Party is, you know, that they would show that level of disrespect even at the even after death of someone who has only spoken truth, not harmed anyone, not bombed the police station, mm. but just stood there, you know, uh, alone. I think that's why I think CCP is one of the most, you know, evil, you know, group in this world. Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, I think just just something come to my mind. I, I, I Raven, uh, what, what's the future of Tibetan literature? That's the question, right? I, it's a, I just I thought if we look at the Tibetan sort of uh, after after Cultural Revolution, so new Tibetan magazines started publishing that Tibetans be able to write things in Tibetan. So uh, then Tibetans start to express themselves through the magazines, journals, poems, but. The, uh, as I said before, because of the literacy rates among Tibetans are very slow, very low, and uh, they just it's reach out a very small circle of those who can read and write, and uh, then they uh, many writers start express themselves through the music. It's, it's a very important uh, sort of turning point. Then recently, uh, start with the uh, uh, you know the Pema Sitten, those uh, new. Filmmaker. He himself is a novelist. Mm. He's a writer himself at the beginning. Then, then another guy is called Daja. That I know personally from my hometown. There's one guy called Yundan. Yundan is a very good writer. Then, these people started jumping into film industry. So they they found a new way to communicate with the people, with the public. They found that's the way to reach out to more people. So, every every there's a website called the Tibetan Films. So. Almost every month, you can find a two, three new films. Like, although I think still they don't really not make a good money, but still they those writers they not stick with the traditional way to communicate with the people. Now they found a different way. So uh, films are another way because uh, that's the way everybody can see, not just uh, read it, just uh, virtually you can see people, people's action, the expression. So uh, some of the films are. Uh, uh, one uh, film made by Yundan. Um, Yundan is from uh, literally from my hometown. He uh, produced a film called Blackboard. It's about a language teacher who visited in a local village to teach Tibetan language. So it's a short film, about 30 minutes or something. It's really powerful. To that individual person, you can zoom it out entire Tibetan. You know, you can see every kind of level of Tibetan cultural repression. People's kids alive. If you graduate uh, something with the Tibetan language certificate, uh, the problem of finding a proper job, it speak a lot. Then this is something we can watch. Not Tibetans, like non-Tibetans as well. So this is another way how Tibetan writers uh, uh, try to find not stick with the traditional style. Then they just uh, expanding the sort of channel of communicating with the people. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting as well. Mm, that's really interesting, and it and it and it certainly gives hope for a future survival of literature in different forms and artistic expression. And so. yeah, many of you, many of you, if you look at the recent uh, some of films, many of those films are based on the novels, and they published it before because novels no, are only right, by some of those people who can read. Now they they turned the novels into a film. That's how everybody can see. There is a very well-known novel called Rallo. Rallo is the name of an individual. So his novel became very popular. I think he received a local press, received something like, but only can, literally people can read it. And now it's become a new movie with the two episodes, I think. Then everybody can listen, watch, enjoy it. Then this is a, another way to uh, communicate. And uh, some of those, especially, I think this year there is a very uh, well-known called, uh, what's it, Namkau, Sky or something. Those are uh, films who are really uh, discussed about Tibetan identity in this modern turning point, not just, just surface level. It's really profound, a deep level. Those movies are not like a Hollywood kind of movie, like like mm. really easy to story. The stories are like complicated, but some of those, because most of those film producers Unlike other Western countries, those are writers, literally, mainly writers who become 
film produced. Like in exile, we know the Jungbu, right? They live in Paris. Mm -hmm. So those popular writers become a film produced. Then they really can communicate mm -hmm. with the people a uh, kind of subtle level, not just the easy story. But it's it's a really interesting. Mm. It's true. Yeah. Pamasedon, of course, as well, wrote or did various films based on the stories. Yes, yes. The stories like Tarlo and so on. Yeah, exactly, Tarlo. Yeah. Mm. I also recently uh, watched uh, his son's debut uh, film, uh, which oh. is called The Four or something like that. Yeah. It's a debut film, but it's really good. And uh, at the end of the film, in the credits, you know, it was, they had both Tibetan, you know, and Chinese. It was not just Chinese, even in the film credits, you know, to have Tibetan script, you know, there. I think uh, it was, you know, really uh, powerful to see Tibetan scripts mentioned at the end of, you know, made by a Tibetan inside Tibet, you know, and to have that in a big screen outside Tibet was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was uh, I was oh the film I was thinking of was the uh, Made in Exile, the Dreaming, um, the Kienzo Norbu film, Bipolar. Have either of you seen that? That's an Exile made film. Dreaming Hasa. No, um, it's called Bipolar. Bipolar. Yeah, Queen Ali is there. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you both. I thought that was a really fascinating, enlightening discussion. Really grateful to you both for that. I hope I didn't go too off tangent. <laughs> Not at yeah. all. No, no. I'm I'm only thinking of um, of drawing a close now because we were keen to keep them at a specific length rather than uh, over a long period. Although, of course, the discussion could could go on for much longer, and I think people could learn a lot more. So, but I thought the way you both communicated was just, it was really beautifully done and, and so insightful. And you said, you both said such a lot in a short period of time. So even, you know, that first 45, 50 minutes was, was very, very tight and really good. So thank you both for that. Now, um, Novelists are looking into being filmmakers, the different forms of expression, those those things, and also the the comments about Sawang Norbu, who self-immolated on February the twenty-fifth outside the Patala Palace. I thought um, those were really thoughtful reflections about the situation. But uh, uh, Choki or Tokme, do you want to say anything else? At that you maybe didn't mention or would like to see featured? One thing I would like to add about the circle dance, you know, um, and the future of Tibetan, uh, just, you know, Tibetan identity, in, just in a broader sense, I think, you know, since 2008, after just protest and self immolations sweeping across Tibet, one, you know, movement emerged from inside Tibet, so Hakka, uh, known as White Wednesday, very loosely translated. So every Wednesday, you know, nobody organized it, you know, with a set of rules. It just was, a, you know, it just organically came out with a first, there was a post, I think, online about what uh, every Tibetan would do on a Wednesday. Um, they would speak in Tibetan language, they would wear Tibetan dress, they would support Tibetan businesses, um, they would, you know, basically 
not even even if they are not going out in the streets in, in big numbers to protest, but every Wednesday, uh, Wednesday because it's the um, sole day of His Holiness Dalai Lama, they would assert their Tibetan identity. Uh, so you know, I think that movement, you know, every Wednesday, uh, Tibetans uh, in Dharamsala, for example, they would be making, you know. Uh, they would be doing prayer and incense offerings um, at Pokhara. They would be dressing in, uh, you know, Tibetan dress and uh, wishing each other, you know, Al-Hakarsam, you know, a happy White Wednesday. Um, I think to have such a decentralized, you know, movement come from inside Tibet uh, shows how with the changing times, you know, Tibetans are finding ways to assert their identity. Um, I think that's, it's, I think it's important to note that like outside in the world where we have movements, uh, where, you know, like Extinction Rebellion, where it's so decentralized, uh, but it's, you know, collectively across the world trying to, you know, uh, challenge the authority uh, by upholding to their own belief. So in a similar way, I think in Tibet, where you know it's uh, whether the cost of being arrested and detained and kept uh, in dark for for years is known. Such movement have been um, have started you know, many years ago after a historic uprising in two thousand and eight. So I think uh, with that, I think the future of Tibetan identity. Um, will you know? Will find a way to you know, uh, assert itself. Thank you. I think that's um, that's a good point to draw a close to what's been a really fascinating discussion. And I'm really grateful to you both for all your insights and your on the ground understanding. Your expertise and your your wonderful ways of describing this this uh, this situation so and looking into the future too the future of tibetan literature the future of tibetan identity and artistic expression so thank you very much thanks kate thank and you